and welcome to a special Easter episode of The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. It was the week that Notre Dame went up in flames, and on this podcast I talked to two Catholics about what it means for them and for France. Plus, we bring you a special debate on euthanasia, and finally we look at why old-fashioned hymns are needed more than ever. Earlier this week, we witnessed the horrifying spectacle of Notre Dame going up in flames. Parts of the building were destroyed, as was its iconic spire. Fortunately, though, the main part of the cathedral and many of its holy artefacts were rescued. I'm joined by Damien Thompson, the Spectator's Associate Editor and Editor-in-Chief of the Catholic Herald, and Matthew Walter, a journalist for the Catholic Herald, to discuss what Notre Dame means to Catholics and to France. So, Damien, I suppose those images of Notre Dame going up in flames will be shocking to lots of people, but what, I mean, what will Catholics have seen in those images? Many Catholics did see a dreadful symbolism. You know, at the moment when the spire collapsed, they saw Catholicism finally falling into the ruins in France. Because France is one of the most irreligious countries in the world. The Catholic Church is in a desperate state. You know, it's worse. Rural Catholicism in France is in a worse state than the rural Church of England. And frankly, that's saying something. So many Catholics were in despair. And their right, perhaps, to be very, very discouraged about Catholicism in France and to lose this, almost lose such a precious symbol and, frankly, to have lost so, so, so much of the fabric of the building is immensely discouraging. Also happened during Holy Week, which is the week when the, the church marks the suffering of Christ, when statues are, are veiled in purple and, and we concentrate, on obviously, on the morning with a U to come on Good Friday. And so lots of people were trying to sort of construct symbolism. The, the crown of thorns, or the purported crown of thorns, is kept in Notre Dame, and it, it was saved. So it's all been a very, very nerve-wracking time in which people have thought deeply about the fate of Christian Europe and worried about its future. I think, they were, I think Catholics were reassured by, by President Macron's call to reconstruct it, but perhaps slightly worried that the reconstruction might acquire a sort of multicultural ledge in which Notre Dame becomes even less Catholic. Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of money pouring in, and they've now said they're going to have a competition for the spire. I mean, do you think there's an element of grandstanding from Macron? Oh, absolutely. I, I think on the day, he, he was genuinely very distressed, and, uh, and I think we shouldn't be too cynical about Macron on the day, but now, yes, of course, I think any president confronted by this sort of disaster is going to exploit it politically. I hate the idea of mucking around with Notre Dame. Yes, it's been hugely mucked around with in the past, and the spire that collapsed was not the original spire, but what I'd hate to see would be the sort of secular 21st century try and impose its identity on what is a, is a Catholic building. As the Archbishop of Paris said so memorably, this is not about the crown of thorns, it's not about the fabric or whatever. This building about, is about a piece of bread, it's a church where the Eucharist is celebrated. Matthew, what did you make when you saw the pictures of Notre Dame? Well, I have to admit, when I first heard that Notre Dame was on fire, I thought that someone meant the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, which is famous for its football. And I have some friends there. And then a few minutes later, I saw it on the computer and uh, was just horrified. Though I also remember thinking somewhat cynically to myself, this will be very sad news for all three living Frenchmen who attend Mass weekly, but not at chapels of the Society of St. Pius X. 
I think that that is sort of a general sense that, you know, with about, I think, 7% of people in France attending mass regularly, that it is just a kind of symbol of the French Republic and of vague multicultural 21st century ideas. And we heard a lot of this in the news coverage when people talked about how, uh, how much they enjoyed going there on vacation. It was just a tourist attraction like the Eiffel Tower or anything else. But I think that what a lot of us saw as the story of the uh, efforts to save the cathedral unfolded was how wrong we all were and how, how the faith of even a few can be very beautiful to see that priest going in to save the relics, to see the uh, crowds of the faithful singing the Ave Maria outside the cathedral as it burned, reminded me uh, in a way that I think is very fitting as we await our Lord's passion and his resurrection that this, this whole marvelous thing, the church, began as a, a small society of obscure believers in uh, something that most people considered absurd. And so in a way, I, I, I found it to be very hopeful and was almost giddy by the end. You know, you almost get, get the, the sense that half of France will be there somewhere for Mass on Sunday. Damien, do you, I mean, do you think there's any chance that the destruction of Notre Dame could help almost revive an interest in Catholicism in France? There's a chance. Wouldn't put your money on it. <laughs> I think we'd need some very badly needed changes at the top of the Catholic Church for that to happen. What I do think is that maybe we, everybody should be thinking about cathedrals in general. Notre Dame was not perhaps number one. I think Eiffel Tower is number one tourist attraction, but Notre Dame had become first and foremost, a tourist attraction, at least from the point of view of the, the people responsible for looking after it, the French state, who had neglected for many years the business. And Michael Brendan Doherty wrote an, an amazing article a couple of years ago saying this, this cathedral is in danger of falling down. Well, you know, something even worse happened, actually. Mm. And so let's have a think about cathedrals as tourist attractions. I find it very uncomfortable to set foot in Westminster Abbey because I just feel it's it, it, it lost its soul. I think it lost its soul when it when 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 it it, it ceased to be a Catholic church. But nonetheless, I, I feel it's lost its Christian Anglican soul because they're so anxious to they they charge you so much to get into the thing. Just, I, don't, I don't know about Notre Dame, but I know to visit the Saint Saint Chapelle in, in Paris because an absolute bomb. I know we need to, to money for these things, and we've been reminded of that this week. But we also need to think. The whole process of turning a cathedral into a tourist attraction is one that should really trouble Christians. Now, I had the experience, I was very, very lucky to have the experience a couple of years ago in being, being in Westminster Abbey before it opened. And I, I was there standing on one of the galleries and I saw the entire church as it was, as a church without any tourists. And you suddenly realize the astonishing significance of this church. So... The whole Notre Dame thing has concentrated my mind on, I think, the dangerous game we're playing. We're damaging not the fabric but the soul of cathedrals by just turning them into another place on the itinerary. Matthew, and what do you think the lessons are that we can learn from Notre Dame? I think it would be a good idea to have sacristans at the door confiscating people's phones and that sort of thing. 
I think that maybe we could learn a thing or two from the way that, that Muslims handle their holy sites. While the idea that at any time someone could stop in and have maybe some kind of mystical experience that later leads to some kind of conversion is a noble thought. I think that what's much more likely to happen is that these spaces become totally desacralized. And the noblest monuments of the church when you know she was at her mightiest just become uh, things that could be rebuilt by Disney tomorrow. I mean, how, how many of these people would care one way or the other? If the Walt Disney Company put together some kind of reconstruction of it that had multicultural memorials and photo opportunities and animatronic gargoyles and that sort of thing, people aren't interested in visiting these places for the purposes for which they were built and the purposes for which presumably they've been maintained for all these years. And you, you see this when you look at the fact that you know, it was so difficult only a few years ago to get six or seven million dollars or something like that for renovation of the cathedral, but now all these trendies are pledging billions and billions of dollars. Well, all of that resonates with me. I remember years ago walking through York Minster with the great Anglican, now Catholic, historian and popular theologian, Dr. Edward Norman. And he, at the time, he was a canon of York Minster. And as we walked through it, he said, first of all, he explained that he thought the building was wildly overrated architecturally. And then he said some very point, pungent things about how undistinguished he thought various features of York Minster were. And he said, look at all these people admiring it, he said. I'd rather they were kneeling down and praying for their own salvation. And <laughs> I'm not calling for that. I'm simply saying that if a cathedral is not a church, it is really nothing but the set of Downton Abbey. Thank you, Damien and Matthew. Next, euthanasia is still illegal in the UK, but a recent poll showed that 90% of the British population support assisted dying for terminally ill people. But euthanasia continues to be a controversial topic, and in this week's Spectator, our literary editor Sam Leith and our associate editor Douglas Murray debated whether or not it should be legalised. Well, I find myself possibly as, you know, in accordance with my position as the Spectator's token hand-wringing liberal, in favour of assisted dying. But I want to be clear, really, on the narrowness of that position, which is to say... You know, if we're talking about this in the context of what's actually being discussed about going into law, the assisted dying bill is not a, is not a bill that allows us to euthanise the incapable. It's, it's not the same as, you know, taking the decision to take the life of somebody else. And likewise, assisted suicide, i.e. able-bodied people who want to kill themselves or, you know, people who are not suffering from a terminal illness who want to kill themselves are kind of a separate argument. I mean, the scope of the assisted dying bill essentially says that you have to have, according to at least two doctors and a high court judge, you have to be of sound mind, have less than six months to live. Um, and at that point, it's something that becomes an option to you. And I think that's a very humane and reasonable position to take. And liberal though I am, the, reason, the, the fundamental reason why I'm in favour of this bill is 
a pretty solid, I suppose, almost conservative position, which is to do with property rights. Most of the you know, foundation of our common law and the liberties we enjoy are to do with the idea that your body and the labour that your body produces is your own. And it seems to me it follows from that that it shouldn't be, and you know, abortion rights have come into this argument as well, it shouldn't be the business of the state to tell you what you can and can't do with your body. And if you're in a position where you very strongly, for good and intelligible reasons and of sound mind, wish to control the circumstances of your death, um, you should be entitled to. And I would think on a basis of you know, personal annoyance, I would feel it was bloody cheek if I was in that situation and the organs of the state told me it was their business, not mine. Well, let me start by disagreeing with one particular thing, which is the idea that your body is your own and therefore you can do what you like with it. I personally don't agree with that. You may have considerable amount of autonomy over your body, as we all do, but it's not just yours and it's not just yours to give or take. Everybody around you, everybody you love and more has some involvement in what you decide to do with your body. And if you decide that you take the view that it is entirely your own choice and solely your choice, you have to, among other things, say, even with the objections of, for instance, your nearest and dearest, your loved ones, that isn't, there's no right, as it were, to allow that to make an impact on it. It's my body, I can do what I want. And then there's a societal follow-on from that, the ripples out from it towards everybody else in society. What does it mean if we all decide we can do whatever we like with ourselves because of our own total personal autonomy? Which means that, for instance, the effect of somebody deciding at a certain stage of, yes, even a terminal illness, deciding to take their life. It is only a terminal illness that we're... Well, let's, we'll get on to that. Yeah. that. That even in the case of terminal illness, who knows what the ripple effects are there on everybody else in society who currently or at any stage in the future suffers from that same illness. We don't know. And I would submit that there are at the very least a lot of aspects that a lot of claims of ownership of a, a near type and of a further away type, which I just can't concede would should be pretended away simply by the claim that it's mine mind to give, mind to take. But let me state, as it were, from the, the first principle on it. There are several reasons why I have very strong feelings about this. The first is that I think that it's an issue which is being described as a right when um, that's at the very least a debatable, a packaging issue, you might say. Secondly, there are very, very few issues that are anything like this one that we discuss. And I've been amazed, I think, when... I wrote about this for the Spectator last, Lord um, Blair Minister, the main proponent of euthanasia. Faulkner. 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 Uh, said to me when we had a discussion about it, said, I can't believe you're talking in such grandiose terms about this, as if one ought to talk about euthanasia or assisted dying as it's repackaged. In the same way you talk about proposals for VAT alteration or something like this. And it isn't. It's, it's, there's only one issue I can think of of remotely similar seriousness, which is abortion. And I think it's a useful comparison for the following reason, which is that when abortion laws were changed in this country and every other country in the West, we were told why they were going to change, and there was a very good reason why they were going to change, 
which was the horror of backstreet abortionists and more. And today you end up in a position where, without very much pushback, other than from some Catholics, abortion is basically a means of contraception, which is, some people agree with, some people don't, but it's an amazing, amazing amount of terrain to cover in a very short space of a few decades. And I see very few reasons why the same kind of speed of shift wouldn't happen with euthanasia. You might say it's a slippery slope, argument, but this, I can assure you, is a very, very slippery slope. I, um, some years ago, went to speak with, with um, euthanasia practitioners and, and others in Belgium and the Netherlands. I was amazed by the slippage that had happened, that it started off with all of the things that you've said, my own body at the very end of my life with a terminal condition. And today, the campaign is for children to be able to do it without the authority of their parents, for people who are mentally ill, for people who are, in the, the phrase that I think translates from the Dutch into English, simply, quote, tired of life, tired of life. And it moved. It moved. And everyone said, oh, don't get all slippery slope on us. It moved. Now, if you have a mental illness in the Netherlands, you know other people who have mental illnesses kill themselves with the approval of the state. We're talking about a law on statute book rather than direction of travel. I mean, I think you know, the sort of thin end of the wedgery, the abortion case, it's a different procedure, it's a different argument. I mean, oddly enough, I'm much more sympathetic, actually, to the case against abortion or the, than I am to this one because there's always an argument at some point between conception and birth at which another body enters into it and we argue over that. This isn't one such case. Well, it's very... So if I say that, the two similarities are, when I say that, first of all, a comparably serious moral case to do with human life. And secondly, the window question. Very similar. The window between conception and potential abortion is not that different as a moral issue between, with the, uh, the difference between the moment of it, where the diagnosis of a terminal illness or the definition of what you describe as being a terminal illness, whether it's physical or mental, and the decision that you can then have euthanasia for that. It's not that different. I would say it is rather different. I mean, the fact that we have two windows doesn't mean they're the same thing. And we're clearly looking at, in this case, more than one window or issue. I mean, there's sort of two separate, and they are analytically separate issues, one of which is the terminal illness, the other one of which is, at least in the way it's being framed in the assisted dying bill, whether or not the person is of sound mind. Hmm. And to sort of conflate those in a, what about children? What about people who aren't of sound mind? What about, you know, people who, who are not capable of making these decisions? It's obviously impossible to prove a negative, but what we're talking about here is making a f find an absolute distinction in law. Now, it may be that public opinion, you know, there's a sort of argument that, okay, two stages down the line, if we sign this into law, people will be pushing for... Oh, without... No, not in... The, the morning after. The morning after. That's what we learned from the Dutch and the Belgian experiences, which are not very different countries from ours, in their historic attitudes and their religious inheritances and more. And they've succeeded in changing the law to that extent? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's been a, it's been a constant push. One of the most interesting things about the, the euthanasia movement in the Netherlands and in Belgium is every time there's always a next step. 
if there is always a next step, if you can always draw a continuum between one reasonable position and an unreasonable position that's a long way down the road, does that mean you should at no point take the reasonable position that the only form of well, I don't bulwark concede- against that is a sort of absolutism? But I don't concede that it's a, it's a reasonable position to start with. Well, I think we're probably going to have to agree to disagree at that point. That was Sam Leith and Douglas Murray. And finally, do we need hymns more than ever? For many of us, communal church singing might bring up uncomfortable memories of long Sunday mornings, uncomfortable pews and dull music. But not for Yesenda Maxton Graham, who argues in this week's issue that in troubled and divisive times, hymns are exactly what we need. She joins me to discuss this, along with the Dean of Westminster, the very Reverend Dr John Hall. Yesenda, you say in your piece this week that hymns matter now more than ever. Why do you say that? Well, actually, as it happens, I, I wrote the body of the piece before the, before the Notre Dame fire, and what moved me to write it then was the sense that we're living in a world where everyone is shouting over each other all the time. We're all addicted to the news and social media, and all we see is people being cleverly sarcastic and hilariously mischievous and nasty about everybody else, blaming everybody but themselves. And I felt that with hymns, my central premise was that with hymns, you find yourself standing up in a row of people, perhaps not having to look anybody else in the eye, and admitting allowed and to beautiful music, your inner disorder, sorrow and frailty. John, as the Dean of Westminster, you obviously must hear a lot of hymns and they must play a very important role in life at Westminster Abbey. How, how important do you think hymns are to 21st century? Well, I think hymns carry a great weight of meaning, really. They're not great poetry, nevertheless, or, or wonderful things in themselves, but when they're set to music in the right sort of way, when they're sung by a congregation... Uh, they can be sort of immensely inspiring, I think, and enlivening. And they add a sort of element. We don't actually have hymns at the Abbey every day. Choral Evensong doesn't normally have a hymn, but we have a hymn on a Saturday. And on a Sunday, all our services have, uh, at least three of the services have hymns. Uh, Whenever I see you processing in, you always know them all by heart. <laughs> I noticed that, and that I feel is another very important very aspect. They're deep in our, deep in our souls. And well, I think knowing them by heart is uh, because you've sung them so often, and you know, for seventy years or something, like almost seventy years, it becomes absolutely sort of part of you. Though I mean, I, the other evening we had a service in St Margaret's Church, uh, evening prayer, there were about a hundred people there, and we had a hymn, "It Is a Thing Most Wonderful," and I was sitting next to one of my colleagues. I won't name her, but nevertheless, one of my colleagues, and we we could both manage the first verse uh, without a text but we didn't have a text with us and we we couldn't see the rest of it <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's yeah. a bit rather sad really <laughs> yeah. do you think there's comfort to be found in, in hymns and the fact that they are sort of so ingrained in our psyche yes I mean, and that's the question I wanted to ask is is it all right to be consoled I mean is it some people say pathetic you know you don't need to be comforted we ought to be frightened and perpetually disturbed but well, perhaps there's something wonderful about the consolation of this that as you say it isn't great poetry which in a way I'm relieved for I say I'm really glad it's not by Keats and Shelley I'm glad they're just simple words by clergymen mostly. <laughs> I've been thinking just at the moment you know as a result of the Notre Dame fire maybe that uh, there's a strong theme within Christianity that we're supposed to suffer with Christ that's part of the story and obviously in Holy Week that comes to the fore but also the Notre Dame thing is the church suffering you see the social church suffering it's this particular church building which is now in a deplorable and sad state and it just reminds you that that element of suffering, I and mean, when you look at the early years of persecution and so on, are sort of fundamental to being a Christian. So it's not all about consolation. 
I think a lot of people do come to church for some sort of consolation, and I don't think there's any harm in that. But that theme of suffering is is something which is really important, I think, and is probably underplayed, generally speaking, in the contemporary church. And do you think, I'm just fascinated by these clergymen who wrote the hymns, a Victorian man after his Sunday lunch sat down in study and wrote, wrote these incredible words through all the changing scenes of life in sorrow and in joy, amazing words that have, almost because they're not too fancy, have an incredible effect. And then there's that extraordinary Victorian J.M. Neal who translated so many ancient hymns yes. into English uh, and, and put them into excellent verse. Such as, remind me, there are... I mean, all the, all the sort of office hymns, that, but there were other hymns, mm. Christmas hymns and Easter hymns yes, that, he, that, that he translated as well. And I think it's rather a sort of sad life, really. He, he, he founded things. He founded the Society of St. Margaret, but he didn't have a very happy ministry himself. He was looking after an almshouse. He died at the age of 48. So his whole life was focused on, on enabling people to... He probably had little idea that he was going to, the, mm, was going to give us such riches. And what, what do you think makes a great hymn and allows it to endure through the centuries? Well, I suppose it is true to say that some of the hymns that, that we're very familiar with, take There is a Green Hill far away, probably we all at least a lot of us would have sung it as children. It's, it's Mrs. C.F. Alexander, you know, she was the wife of... I mean, there a, is a Green Hill far away, such a child, childlike, childlike word. It is such a childlike thing. But it, it ends with a piece of pure doggerel, and it, you know, it says we, we sort of try and do the things that he does. It's, uh, it, it's rather, sort of, uh, rather a sort of sad ending. Whereas on the whole, I mean, some of the other great... When I survey the wondrous cross, you know, Isaac Watts, I mean, that is just the most marvellous. Extraordinary. That's why I'm rather... And the last verse, you know, yes. is, is just... With a whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands, demands my, my life, life, soul, my life, life my, my all. all. And yes. there is the sort of sense of engaging in the suffering of yeah. Christ. And I say in the article that I'm, I've always find Easter a tiny bit of an anticlimax hymn-wise because Alleluia is such an uncomfortable word to sing 55 <laughs> times. You also um, say that you sometimes can't wait for the hymn to be over. Oh dear, Can well, you? I'm just very honest about that. I mean, I'm always a little bit impatient in churches. <laughs> but look, there are some hymns which are terribly boring and which you just have to sort of work your Fly way through. Fly away through, I think. There are, um, so like tromping away through a rather bad Sunday. Probably won't actually name it. <laughs> And I have to ask, what, I mean, what, what are your favourite hymns? Oh, gosh. Well, I do chose in the piece, I, cho- I quote angel voices ever singing round thy throne of light, because it just blossoms out from a very simple tune, and these beautiful words, craftsman's art and music's measure for thy pleasure all combine. What about you? So beautiful. Well, I, my absolute favourite, well, I mean, I could name all sorts of others, because Westminster Abbey, and the, the tune is Westminster Abbey, is Christ has made the sure foundation. And I mean, there was a marvellous moment when the Pope came, Pope Benedict, in 2010. And he and I were standing beside each other at the back of the church while there was a procession going through. And the choir was singing Christ has Made the Sure Foundation. There was a congregation of 2,200 people. They were all singing Christ has Made the Sure Foundation. We didn't actually have the text in front of us at the time. So he and I were sort of standing there. So I said to him, this was rather bold of me, really, but I turned to the Pope and said... This hymn is Christ is Made the Shore Foundation. And, and the tune is Westminster Abbey, which was written by Henry Purcell, who was our organist. And he obviously knew of Henry Purcell. He said, Henry Purcell, organist here. And uh, he just hadn't realised he was our, was our organist. So that was a very, <laughs> one of my And my grandmother, moments. my grandmother wrote Lord of All Hopefulness, Lord of All Joy, really? which is a very popular hymn and one of my, fa- I have to name that as one of my favourites. Oh, that's all gorgeous. I mean, I do think that sort of uplifting and cheerful hymns are, are good, but, but also solemn and sad hymns are fine. 
And I, I do think that there are some great hymns that, that take us right to the heart of Christianity and others which are just wash, really. And George Herbert took us to the heart, didn't he? George Herbert takes us to the heart. That wonderful man with such extraordinary gifts, burying himself in a sort of Salisbury parish, a little parish, mm. Again, and, to create, and dying. To create. I call him the Vermeer, the Vermeer of hymn writers. I was proud of that because I think that there's a Vermeer and he share that familiarity. We are making an absolute judgment about artists. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. And that's it for this week. Please do let us know if you like this podcast. You can subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. And we always like to hear from you. And if you pick up this week's Easter special, you can read more pieces from Tom Holland, Melissa Kite and Liam Halligan, as well as all of the pieces discussed on this podcast. And we've got a special offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 John Lewis voucher if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. Music.